What are you waiting for? Welcome to This Is Not A Dress Rehearsal Podcast. Stop holding your breath, waiting for perfect conditions before you move through the world. Tune in for real stories of real people who understand the freedom to live well. Your host, Bonnie Sewell, is a veteran wealth manager with 12 grandchildren, helping clients over the last 30 years enjoy their wealth. You can listen to all podcasts at www.americancapitalplanning.com slash podcast or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. As executive director, Sean Hughes serves as the president and chief executive officer of the William and Mary Real Estate Foundation. In this role, he acquires, manages, sells, leases, and develops real properties in support of the educational goals of William and Mary. Prior to that, Sean served as the director of planning and real estate at the Charleston County School District in Charleston County, South Carolina. Sean earned a Bachelor of Science degree in marketing from Clemson University. After several years of construction management experience, he then earned a Master of Public Administration with a focus in urban and regional planning in a joint degree program from University of South Carolina and the College of Charleston. He is a LEED, L-E-E-D, accredited professional in both building design and construction, as well as operations and maintenance. Additionally, Sean holds accreditation from the International Facilities Management Association as a Sustainability Facility Professional, or SFP. Sean is a happily married father of two rambunctious boys, also my grandsons, living in Williamsburg, Virginia. He is also this proud mama's oldest son. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for having me this morning. Excited to be here and to talk about uh, financial planning and, and what I do. So your professional world is real estate. When most of us think of a career in real estate, we imagine our favorite local realtor selling individual homes, but that's not what you do at all. Can you tell us about what you are doing in real estate? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I work in what is referred to as corporate real estate or institutional real estate, one of the many corners of commercial real estate. I've done the residential side of things before and decided uh, it wasn't what I thought it would be. It's interesting. All things occupy space of some kind, whether it's your house, a storefront, restaurant, data center, office, or something else. So even as companies continue to become more virtual or paperless, chances are they're uh, renting space in a data center somewhere or their cloud, quote unquote cloud, sits in a data center somewhere. And that data center is a real building in a real place. Ironically, most of them where you are in Loudoun County, I think about 75 or 70 Somewhere in there, percent of the world's internet traffic flows through Loudoun County because of the data center concentration you guys have there. But everything is tied to real estate in the business world and to a large degree, the personal world as well, unless you're homeless. Uh, and even then you have some interaction with real estate. And so behind all those companies is a group of people, a team of people, sometimes in, in very large companies, thousands of people. Uh, who work in the corporate real estate department. It may be called a number of different things, may be called workplace in some of the technology companies. It may be called just real estate in a lot of companies. It may be, it may have a number of different names, but these people are in charge of developing, acquiring and management of the real estate space. When a company starts up, and gets established, they typically need some space in which to conduct their business. Uh, and so that's that's uh, the simplest version of what I do and typically doesn't require a specialized person. But as you get larger and add multiple properties or, or have a complex campus or international properties, it requires some management. Leases are different from state to state. Rules are different from state to state. Uh, leases are different from property type to property type. A storage lease looks different than a storefront lease. Uh, office lease looks different than a retail lease, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so it requires a team of people. Usually if they are not lawyers, I am not a lawyer. Uh, they work hand in hand with lawyers, either internal or external. And these people, what I do, are in charge of making sure that you have the proper platform in which to conduct your business and your customers or clients or whatever they may be that interact with your business have the proper platform in which to engage you in your business. And it really runs the gamut. Think of a Wawa or a CVS. They have a team of people 
who are in charge of identifying where the best location is uh, in a particular town or city to put their new locations. They negotiate leases. They could be land leases. So in commercial real estate, a lease isn't necessarily like an apartment lease. It's I could lease you land for 50 years and give you all the rights of that land except ownership, which means you can build whatever you want. You pay me a small payment each year. And then at the end of that land lease, I take back my land and whatever's on it. And so it's a varied business. And then specifically what I do at William & Mary, so I, I manage real estate on behalf of two groups. One is uh, William & Mary is an agency of the Commonwealth of Virginia, so an arm of the state where I live. And then the other is the William & Mary Real Estate Foundation, which is a private nonprofit, which I'm the CEO of. So the private nonprofit exists, sanctioned under Virginia law, uh, or Commonwealth law, I should say. Its whole purpose, and I have an independent board that I report to, is to pursue and support the educational goals of William & Mary through real estate to shorten it up. Um, and so what that is in practice is outside of the core campus, uh, and anyone who is familiar with college towns will know that colleges have been steadily creeping outward from their original campuses over the last 50 years. And so anything outside the original Commonwealth-owned campus is typically privately owned. And in, in our case, in many cases, it's owned by an endowment association or an arm of, of a foundation related to the university. So in William & Mary's case, we have a standalone real estate foundation for a number of reasons, uh, risk management and finances being two of the primary reasons. And we own and operate all the stuff, quote unquote, outside the walls of William & Mary. William & Mary is surrounded by these beautiful brick walls that have been there for hundreds of years. And outside of those walls, anything you see that looks like campus is probably owned and operated by our foundation. And so that includes dorms, that includes retail, that includes other office space, storage spaces. It really runs the gamut. And so the job is to make sure those places exist, operate well, and are seamlessly part of the campus. And it's a benefit for William & Mary, it, just like it would be a benefit for any of the organizations where they don't have to expend their resources operating these places, but they get to enjoy them. So building on that, there are physical buildings of a business or institution like the school and housing buildings for William & Mary and uh, their staff and students that you've just talked about, but they invest in real estate beyond that. Why and what is involved in your work on in that part? Sure. Great question. And it's true. Many institutions are involved in real estate beyond just their current buildings, either directly or indirectly. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So at William & Mary, like many other top-tier higher education institutions, they're involved in both. Indirect real estate, meaning they invest in real estate funds, just like a number of folks do. It's popular among pensions and other endowments. And then direct ownership, which is what I handle for the university and all our, of our 11 foundations that we have at William & Mary. We are involved in developing new projects and auxiliary projects that complement the main institution's everyday experience. So we're still in COVID and commercial space is really being reimagined. I don't think we're all the way there yet, but what do you see in the short term, midterm and long term as some potential effects and outcomes? Yeah, I think about this a lot and this may be ultimately my longest answer in this podcast, but it's my job to think about how to best position our various institutions under the William & Mary umbrella and we, we have a diverse group of institutions under that umbrella. So in general, uh, you, you'd find this reported in any place that reports news. COVID hasn't necessarily caused a lot of these things, but it's certainly accelerated a lot of trends that were already in place. One of those trends that's easy to point to that anyone can look around their town and see is that traditional retail uh, storefronts and, and restaurants were already starting, uh, restaurants to a lesser degree, that's maybe more COVID specific, but but traditional retail is already struggling. Malls have been falling into foreclosure long before COVID came around. Online shopping has increased, et cetera. So short term, I would expect, and I'm not speaking specifically about William & Mary, I'm speaking about generally real estate, but short term, I think the pain's going to continue to a degree as people, business owners and others limp forward with reduced foot traffic. Uh, people cope with job losses and loss of discretionary income. And uh, job losses continue to mount up as, as the states are dealing with uh, subsequent outbreaks of COVID and trying to restrict what people are doing based on that. California is a good example right now, especially Southern California and LA, they're full stop shut down. So I think short term, we're going to continue on as we have been over the last several months. Uh, it would encourage people to support their favorite local places to keep them in business if possible. 
medium term, uh, I think vaccines roll out to a significant degree. Herd immunity is achieved, I think, once we reach about 70% of the population, either having had the virus or being vaccinated. And that is expected sometime later in 2021. So I think life returns to quote unquote normal. But there, in the medium term, there remains an extreme backlog of issues that are specific to real estate, uh, which has always lagged the general economy and will continue. And I think they'll come to a head in the medium term. And so some of those issues are people have been deferring rent throughout this period, which means they haven't been paying it at all. You know, while that's been good for their household finances or for their business finances, the landlord is still going to hand have their hand out at the end of this with an expectation of full payment for this period unless you've negotiated some sort of other agreement with them, which isn't typical. I will say, at least where I am, 70 to 80% of the people have continued to pay. The 20% that haven't are expected to come in full at some point in the future. And if they can't, I have seen, even in the face of no other people coming in, landlords gearing up to evict when it's convenient to do so. And it's not necessarily because they're vindictive people or uncaring people at all. In the real estate world, it is typically backed by a ton of debt. So we take debt on our properties when we purchase them, debt carried by our foundation. And banks have pretty strong contract language about what you have to do in the event of a default, either on your part or, or other people's part. And so ultimately, this will fall back to the banks much like the financial crisis of 2008. And there will be some discussion about how to handle this on a large scale because it's not a small scale item at this point. Long term, I think certain things that we have come to know as uh, part of normal life during COVID will continue to be here. Those are things like curbside delivery, any store you go to, heavy reliance on industrial space. So industrial space would mean like warehouses and distribution centers. That is the one sector of real estate that has had its foot on the gas for a very long time and has accelerated extraordinarily throughout COVID as online orders and shopping have shot through the roof. I suspect all that stuff will remain. And I suspect also long-term that this will be a major, COVID will be a major force on reimagining the workplace it's not because of COVID, but because COVID's this rapid change agent in our market that speeds up trends in our workplace. I think a number of companies have been very hesitant to try a large-scale work at home because the downside of that failure was far too great for any one executive to take the risk on. But we were all forced to do it. And in some cases, it works really well. And I have to believe that there'd be a number of executives who uh, balance their books for their company by getting rid of some real estate. So if someone has a billion dollars in real estate and they can get by with 800 million, I don't see anything that slows them down from saying, hey, I saved $200 million by getting rid of some leases because there are holes in everyone's balance sheet other places because of COVID. Even if, and I enjoy this at my company, even if There are no immediate negatives to operations. There are costs associated with COVID. There's the cost of plexiglass, the cost of signage, the cost of a lot more cleaning and different types of cleaning, specialized cleaning. There's the cost of fumigating when there is a COVID case uh, in your building for COVID in our buildings. When we do have an identified case, and we've been very lucky that our numbers have been extremely low where we are in our organization and, and the organization that we serve in William & Mary, But when there's a case, we fumigate the rooms with antibacterials and a special uh, formula that has been approved by a number of agencies. And and that stuff isn't cheap. We don't do it sparingly when we do it. We end up, you know, being very liberal with it and going everywhere we can. And there's increased filter changes in the buildings. A whole bunch of stuff starts to stack up. And then for uh, organizations that occupy real estate, they're paying a lot of leases where no one's in the building. I went to one of our office buildings that we own the other day that is fully leased out. And I was one of two people in a 20,000 square foot building. I expect this to continue. It's where it's really prevalent is where you look at highly dense areas such as New York City, Washington, D.C., which has not only dealt with COVID, but a number of other disturbances, uh, Chicago, et cetera. It's pretty interesting to walk through those cities. We have space in many of those cities. I've been to them since COVID has hit. And it's 
it's rather unsettling if you've been there previously when when everyone was out on the streets and in stores. But all that stuff is either still being paid for or tab is running somewhere. And I think a lot of that has to be sorted out. And it's not going to be a pleasant conversation for sorting it out because someone's going to get left holding the bag if it's landlords. And when I have used landlords thus far, I'm talking about big landlords, but the majority of landlords in the U.S. are one property, mom and pop shops. I've done that as well. And without renters, you know, your mortgage needs to be paid every month. And without renters, it's hard to do that uh, if you don't have a ton of other discretionary income. But for big uh, landlords as well, it's going to be an issue. It's either going to be the landlord or the bank at the end of the day. If a tenant goes out of business, it's, it's a sad thing, right? Someone went out of business and they get to walk, but we're all getting, there's a group of us who have to worry about what happens after that. So I, I think that's really, you're making some really great points. And I think one of the challenges around what I think of as kind of a false narrative around the Fed's been really clear, the bills will be paid. They've been very consistent that the bills will be paid, although they're not saying when. So I think your description there of it's a matter of time, not when, or not if, but when. But I want to, you know, at 37, you are pretty deep into real estate and you studied marketing in school at the undergrad level, but your first job out of college was in real estate. And how did your interest in all this start? Sure. I've always been interested in what I've come to know as the built environment, building cities. From a very young age, I've been pretty enamored with it. We used to live in Philadelphia. I love going down to Center City and looking at the big buildings. I'm from Chicago originally. While I didn't live there as any sort of older person, I've been back many times as an adult and, and love love the skyscrapers and, and the story of Chicago rebuilding after the fire and all the innovations that have made buildings like that possible. I loved Legos as a kid. I still have a decent collection of Legos at your house, uh, I think. And um, I played SimCity a ton, the video game SimCity, where you build a city uh, and you know, you're acting as the mayor and you get to make all the decisions that either lead to growth or decline. I loved that game and it certainly was telling, looking back on it, where I would end up. And that's, I think, where a lot of the interest came in, in the first master's degree. One of the things that's, that wasn't in the intro is I'm currently in the MBA program at William & Mary, but my first degree was public administration uh, with a focus in urban and regional planning. And I think that's, you know, that's an early sign of where a lot of that interest came from. And in my current job, I'm in Williamsburg, Virginia, the colonial capital of the country and, and of Virginia specifically where Colonial Williamsburg is, but it's a relatively small town. I have a lot of interface with elected officials and, and those decisions. And we're one of the bigger players here in town in terms of real estate and space. And so I get to play on a lot of those interests in my current job. And it's always been interesting to me. It continues to be interesting to me. I find it fascinating how even the smallest towns and villages are grown and changed. And there are really interesting decisions being made in rooms about how cities develop and what happens to a particular piece of land. And besides just making the decisions, there has to be money uh, involved. It has to make sense for everybody. And I'm, it's, it's, I get to play on all those interests uh, in my current role in this corporate real estate role. And, and uh, it's been uh, a long journey to get here, but this is what I would consider my dream job uh, where I get to do all these different things and, you know, be an executive of a real estate company that has a outsized impact on what happens where I live. Well, and you probably don't remember, but as a young boy, with as a, we would go around and out and about in our daily life, um, I always carried a pencil and paper with us, and you would consistently draw buildings. And for a brief time, you had a very strong interest in architecture, but you move a little faster than architecture programs that are a lot like MD programs. So I, I'm not surprised you ended up. I don't know if you know this story, but when I was at Clemson, I talked to the architecture department when I first got there, and they explained what their program was like to me. And I heard repeatedly, no social life, and you will be in the architecture lab drawing for five years. And that was enough for me. It, while it is interesting to design buildings, and I think it's a fascinating discipline, I'm thankful I ended up where I, where I am and not in architecture solely because I don't know very many architects outside of the famous ones who actually get to draw what they want. In fact, I'm probably in my role, one of the bane of existences, of their existence, I should say, of architects, because they come in with what they think is a perfect drawing. And I proceed to say, hey, I'm writing the check and this is what we're going to do. And you're going to change this, this and this. And I can see it in other faces. They, they hate that, but 
I'm the client in that situation and I have a whole bunch of other forces on me. It's not what it's not what Sean wants. It's what I think will get by the city uh, planning office, what I need the building to ultimately do uh, and what I need it to look like uh, in order to not have a public relations issue with the community. And so I, <laughs> I'm pretty glad I didn't end up in, in architecture. Uh, as it turns out, it's a great discipline. And I, I know some really smart, good architects uh, that I've come to know through my various jobs. The other place I thought I might end up was engineering. I don't know if you know this one either, but I took an intro to calculus class in my first semester at Clemson. And um, the first thing they do is they give you a pretest, a 20-question pretest. And I remember I took the pretest the first class, and I got a note from the professor saying to come see them. And so I went into the office, and you know, I was 18. I thought, oh, I must have aced this thing, and they want to congratulate me. No. The professor very nicely said, you got three right out of 20. I don't think engineering <laughs> for you. Oh, well. <laughs> Redirect. Turn left. Oh, my. Well, sustainability is a critical concept now, and I hope I'm connecting this correctly. You even went to Sydney, Australia um, to learn a little bit more about um, sustainability, but you've been in that space for a long time. How do you see that idea being implemented in commercial space going forward? Yeah, so sustainability either takes on a number of, I guess, mental models for people. It can be everything from the save the earth, let's put solar panels on everything. And I don't say that too tongue in cheek. It, it's just, there's a group that wants to green everything. And then there's a group who, and this is, I think the group I fall into, I certainly can empathize with the save the earth group. And I think that's an important goal. I'm not downplaying that at all. But where sustainability meets real estate for me is it's a bottom line thing. So sustainability is often described as a three-legged stool, social, environmental, and economic sustainability. I tend to focus and it tends to get executives attention outside of trying to greenwash something, which, you know, trying to make it look or sound sustainable with without actually changing anything. But what it gets executives attention in my experience, and my experience is a little bit different than a lot of commercial real estate folks. I've worked almost primarily for government or state institutions and which are if you've had any interaction with them, very adverse to change, much more uh, slow to make wide sweeping changes in some cases than private institutions because market forces are different on our various institutions. But where I, I sit to answer the question is on that economic uh, leg of the stool. And that's what gets executives' attention. Does it save us money? In my opinion, good sustainability measures do save money. They directly contribute to the bottom line. So day-to-day -day sustainability for me is a bunch of modeling in Excel is what it boils down to. So we look at a lighting retrofit in a building where we have a big office building. It has the two foot by four foot fluorescent uh, light bulb trays in the ceiling. And those light bulb trays may have four bulbs in them and they may use 120 watts of power. And then you have those, let's say, a couple thousand times throughout the building, right? So that starts to add up and become real money. And so we'll look at a lighting retrofit and we'll replace those with LED tubes uh, in those same lights because that's the cheapest way to do it without replacing the whole light fixture. Uh, it's called a bulb retrofit. And um, when we look at those, we'll say, all right, so the new under the new bulbs, these same lights will not use 120 watts, they'll use 20. And then so we take our electric rate that we pay and how many hours a day we have those lights on and we can determine the cost savings. And then we look at how much it'll cost us to acquire the lights and install them. And then we start to build our payback model. And so this is something lighting, I purposely picked lighting to talk about because it's such an easy thing to do and it almost always pays for itself. Um, and so it's a really easy thing for me to do. Walking into my job two years ago, it's one of the first things I did. I used to be an energy management person in Charleston previous to real estate as well, to my role in real estate at the organization I was at which was in charge of making all the uh, facilities more sustainable and energy efficient. And so this is something that immediately pays back. I'm already seeing dividends from the lighting retrofits I did when I got here. Other things include, you know, people often don't think about this, but you pay for trash a certain way, typically by the number of either the tonnage or how many times they have to come haul it away a week. So recycling, besides being, you know, good for the environment, right? Not stuff doesn't go to landfills. Well, everything I don't have to haul away in a dumpster, I pay less for because there's other incentives for people to come grab recycling. And so there's a way to lower costs for buildings almost universally around the building by thinking sustainably about that. The other thing that we do that people aren't as fond of is controlling the air conditioning. So centralized control of air conditioning is a great way to save money. It's also a great way to make everyone in the building miserable. So there's a fine line there. And it's one of those instances where 
some of the behind the scenes stuff that goes on in corporate real estate world and the facilities world uh, interacts with the building occupants in, in a meaningful way. Most people are very sensitive to temperature. And so that's a good example of a sustainability measure that everyone can kind of see and feel uh, and have pretty strong opinions on. But to close up, the the idea around sustainability is that you can be better for the earth, be better for the community, and save money at the same time. That's where real estate and uh, facilities folks are driving in sustainability from. So it's interesting because you touched on air conditioning. I don't know if you'll use this example, but technology obviously is everywhere today and technology in the home. We have smart home things. Sometimes they work together, sometimes they don't. But I'm curious, what technology are you seeing today inside commercial buildings and what technology do you expect or hope to see in the future? Yeah, so this is an interesting question, especially in the time that we're talking about it, because I think one thing that people will find out is there's a lot more technology in buildings than than you thought, and it doesn't even just have to do with facilities type stuff. So it's January 13th, 2021 today. So seven days ago, there was a riot or, uh, you know, call it what you will at the Capitol building. One of the things I think people are going to find out is, especially in older buildings like that, and I've done this in buildings where you set up an internal cell phone network. So you have cell phone reception in these large cavernous buildings that are cut up a thousand different ways and everything like that. Anytime you walk into a building like that, your cell phone pings the thing in the building instead of a cell tower. I know who's there. This is one of the way that they're going to tell down to a person who was in that building on January 6th because they would have all pinged a cell phone network if their cell phones were on and with them. And judging by the amount of pictures and everything that came out, they were there. And I'm not trying to get political, but... There's a ton of technology in buildings that people don't see and take for granted. For the most part, if you were to walk into a large building with terrible cell phone reception, but you had cell phone reception, you would think, oh, I'm just getting cell phone reception. Chances are you switched off the towers that are outside into the internal antennas that are in the building. The other thing we can track people who swipe in and swipe out. When there's cameras in a lot of buildings, there's technology that's existed for a long time where police can tap into building cameras. So when I was in Charleston, our headquarters for our school district was one door down across the street from the Emanuel Church where the shooting was. We had an elementary school right next to our building uh, that faced the Emanuel Church. And when that shooting happened, the police were able to tap into our building cameras uh, and get footage immediately. And so there's a lot of information sharing that goes on. And you have to remember, too, that almost everything is digital. There are no tapes anywhere. Stuff is immediately recorded digitally and then uploaded almost immediately to a backup site. And so it's not, there is no more pulling the tapes, so to speak. And even if something on site was taken or stolen during a robbery, that video footage would exist elsewhere. And so that's some of the the IT stuff. Uh, I think you'll find also as, as the 5G internet rolls out, that requires a ton more towers. So for real estate, that's an income opportunity for me if I agree to put a tower on my building I get revenue from that, and also our cell phone reception improves. Uh, And so that's a user experience plus and a revenue plus. And so technology is all over. And then, you know, you you asked me about air conditioning too. Air conditioning technology is impressive. I got a real education in this when I was in Charleston in the facilities department. I can control any number of, we called it the 99 points report. I can control 99 different things on any given air conditioner. I can control how much coolant is flowing through the coil. I can control how much a damper is open. From my office, 30 miles away from the building, I can, can move a damper half an inch. I can spin up a fan. I can pull a system down. And there's a whole bunch of other technology that we had and we that continues to be improved on and implemented all over the country to help uh, reduce the demand of power and everything like that. So we had ice storage where we would make ice when power, the price of power fluctuates throughout the day. They have what they call peak demand periods. So when you think about when we use the most power, it's typically in the afternoon, sometime between 4 and 6 p.m. in August, when all the air conditioners are going, football practice is going on, stadium lights are on, all the buildings are occupied, both at work buildings and home buildings, people are cooking dinner. And it's, uh, you know, for Britain, there's a noticeable spike every night after dinner when they all put their tea on. Um, <laughs> and so the power companies, it costs them money to generate power, right? They have to bring power plants on to meet peak demand. And so they charge more for power during these times. And so you have these moving windows of peak demand where electricity costs more. And so one of the things, you know, we've done in the past, and we don't have ice storage at William & Mary, we have other implementations of how we save money and reduce demand. 
but we have what we call ice storage. So when power was cheap in the middle of the night, we'd make a whole bunch of ice in these giant vats hidden in a, uh, in a maintenance yard, right? And then when power was expensive and we were running air conditioning, we let the ice melt and use that cool water to provide coolness in the air conditioning system. So it was a way to uh, reduce our, our power. And large, large consumers of power pay a demand charge on top of regular electricity use. So, you know, we were paying, I think, close to uh, 100 grand in, in peak power in one of our places on top of the regular electric bill that we got. And so being able to chop off some of that helps reduce the bottom line. And so that's where technology really is in buildings is it helps us, one, make the user experience better, two, drive down the bottom line, and three, a lot of times make the building safer. And technology doesn't have to be all computers. You know, one of the things we did when we built schools is we had bullet-resistant glass in the lobby to be able to lock an intruder in if we needed to where they couldn't get out. And so there's material technology that's, that's working there as well. And that's a good thing. So better glass, better sound acoustics in rooms, better insulation properties uh, for building materials. And so it runs the gamut. There's a whole bunch of technology from a bunch of different directions driving at buildings. So one more thought on technology. Um, some industries have been really slow to evolve with technology. Real estate as a physical asset is pretty ripe for disruption. And I'm thinking here in the process of buying, selling and leasing. What do you see there? Yeah, so there's a number of things that are, I'd say real estate and construction in general have been resistant to change, mostly because it costs a lot to alter a building. It's really disruptive to alter a building. Most buildings are built and then utilized all the time. No one wants to be put out while we tear apart the walls and do more infrastructure. And so that's where a lot of the wireless technologies are doing really well because they don't require buildings to come out, but to your question, or walls to come out, but to your question, there is everything from democratization of buying and selling information with websites like Zillow, LoopNet, and others, LoopNet on the commercial side. But then there's a lot of people working on computerizing lease management. Uh, are you talking about, just let me ask you, are you talking about smart contracts there? I'm talking about smart contracts. I'm talking about AI software that reads leases and then spits out abstracts. Uh, abstracting leases is a time-consuming process for a lot of big organizations keeps track of, of everything, you know, the computerized lease maintenance. And then there's the whole transaction issue. So there've been a lot of title fraud issues in the last year or two, a wire fraud as well. And, you know, one of the things that the people are trying to drive towards is a blockchain ledger for uh, real estate sales and leasing cities with their tax records. I know we're looking at, at blockchain tax records and deed records, et cetera, computerizing all that stuff. To this day, when I need to pull an original deed, I have to go to the courthouse, go through the gates, go through the metal detectors, and end up in a room full of paper files. And you know, there, a lot of them are digitized as well, but you have to pay for access to the digitized files as they try and recoup the cost of digitizing hundreds of years of property transactions. And it's going to become a problem going forward. So in the last probably 20 years, we've done a lot more real estate transactions than we've done for the last hundred because more people are around and there's been a lot of churn in the market. And so at some point, they're going to have to figure out a better system than the one we currently have. Blockchain is an interesting technology in that regard. And there's a bunch of very smart people, from what I can tell, working around changing this industry. And when it happens, I think it'll be pretty quick. It's just, again, you got a bunch of people in the industry who aren't begging for the change yet. Uh, you have many who are, but you don't have a critical mass yet. I, but I think we're getting there. So we're going to really switch gears here. Your childhood involved several cross-country moves. I guess there's still a little real estate in that. But in some dark humor, uh, you and your brother, Kevin, often joke that you have no childhood hometown. And of course, my history is I grew up in a small town outside Chicago with three generations of my family in that same town. As a, an adult and father, do you see some advantages now? And did you have a favorite home or city from all of those moves? Yeah, I actually do see some advantages. So my wife is, you know, born and raised in one city her whole life. So we moved up here. I think it was a much bigger deal for her than it was for me. For me, it was another place on the map. And, you know, of course, I love it where I live and we have a wonderful life here. But I think I noticed at first when I got to college, it was very easy for me to make friends. The process of going to college was interesting. I had people, I had things in common with people from all over the country. At Clemson, we had a pretty diverse dorm in terms of geographic location. And it was really easy. I had a best friend. Anthony from New York, and I had another uh, great friend, Eric, from Indiana. 
So I've lived in the Midwest. I've lived in the Northeast. It's, it's just really easy to make make friends. And I could certainly have things in common with everybody. I understood references they made to places. A lot of that was me being really interested in physical places. So I tend to memorize things when I go somewhere, streets and important landmarks and other things like that. So for me, I thought it was, it was really helpful. It was really appreciated as I got older. And then for a favorite place or city, I don't know. I'm still very enamored with Chicago because of the built environment there. You know, we've taken several lovely trips and had some storybook vacations at, at Christmas, walking down Michigan Avenue, looking in the, the windows of shops and enjoying the snow and everything. As an adult, going back to Philadelphia, I really like Philadelphia, especially the uh, the mainline area of Philadelphia on the west side of Philadelphia. And, you know, I'm generally happy where I am right now. And here in Williamsburg, it's a lovely place to live. We sit uh, right between Richmond and Norfolk, uh, and we're two and a half hours from Washington, D.C. It's quite a lovely place to live. And I also, the first place I lived after school, Charlotte, North Carolina. I hate that I say North Carolina because when I lived in Charlotte, everyone was had a chip on their shoulder that it was always shown in the news as Charlotte, North Carolina. So Charlotte uh, was a wonderful place to live. Would probably move back there if I was offered the right job because it was just it was a lovely city, super accessible. Millennials were the largest age group in that city. It's clean, it's safe, and uh, had access to an amazing international airport, which I still miss to this day. Being able to drive from my apartment in Center City, Charlotte, be at the airport in 15 minutes, get through security in another 15 and be on a plane was just, it's just unheard of for an airport that we, where you can fly anywhere. So Char- I would say Charlotte, Philly, and Chicago were favorites in the past. I'm certainly, I guess one of the things moving may have done is taught me to be happy where I am. And I'm certainly very happy where I am now. I I love Williamsburg and all that it has to offer. It's a great place to raise a family. Well, I'm really thrilled to hear that as your mom, that we didn't scar you and that that you benefited. But speaking of fatherhood, you and your wife, Jessie, who is also, of course, my right-hand woman and uh, the client uh, relationship manager for our firm, but you guys have both been working full-time from home uh, during COVID, and your boys are only five and three. So talk about some of the good, bad, and ugly, maybe some funny times that you've lived through all these months. Yeah. So in general, I'll preface this by the fact that I feel incredibly fortunate that both me and my wife have jobs that were easily transitioned to remote work. I'm still remote here in January 2021 because it's not essential that I be on campus. And, uh, you know, we've been very fortunate in that we transitioned our jobs to online with very little trouble. Uh, I know you guys were already prepared more than most for that, but our institution, who has focused for 328 years this year on in-person education, was forced, like everyone else in the world, to change, Um, and and we did it well. And so very fortunate that that was able to happen, very fortunate that we live in a town with a good amount of fixed income. Williamsburg's a big retirement destination. And so for the most part, day-to-day life hasn't changed that much aside from where we are at home. I'm also very fortunate that our kids are young. Our oldest was supposed to start kindergarten this year, and unfortunately, he was unable to have the traditional kindergarten experience because of COVID. But I have many friends at work in town who have kids who are juniors, who are missing the bulk of their high school years. That includes sports. College visits are very different now. So the traditional American experience in high school has been severely disrupted. I feel very fortunate that my kids are are young. And so I guess, you know, the good is that we haven't had to change that much. Our kids miss their preschool friends very much and have let us know. And that's been heart-wrenching. We um, certainly, Williamsburg's a tourist town. Our boys are probably pretty warped. Uh, so they lived in, they were born in Charleston, both of them. And, and so they got used to walking around a historic city with all this stuff happening all the time with tourism and everything. And then we brought them to Williamsburg. And, you know, in Williamsburg, we have Bush Gardens, Colonial Williamsburg. We have Water Country USA. We're near a whole bunch of other stuff. And so I'm sure our kids are somewhat warped in the fact that a normal Saturday morning in go- involves going to Bush Gardens for a couple hours. So that stuff has had to stop. And, uh, and we've heard loudly from the three-year-old of all people that that is unacceptable. And so, uh, you know, we've built, again, I can't overstate how fortunate we've been that, that all our problems are very, very trivial related to COVID. We've been pretty careful ourselves. None of us have gotten sick. And, you know, our life generally continues. I think probably one of the more positive things to come out of COVID is early on, I I looked at Jesse and I said, you know, we're never going to have this much time with the kids ever again until we're retired. 
ever. And so we've really tried to spend time with our kids where possible, where we wouldn't normally be able to spend time with the kids in between meetings and you know getting to know them. And so it's been, and it sounds weird saying getting to know your kids, but if you think about it, during the normal American life before COVID, you really saw your family members for just a couple hours a day when you weren't sleeping. And so this has been, for us, lovely. I mean, I feel like I know my kids extremely well at this point, and we've gotten to do a whole bunch of projects that wouldn't have happened otherwise out in the yard. We've felled trees. We've built stuff. We've tried to spend a lot of time with them doing interesting things. We've tried to visit uh, relatives who are being safe as well. We've come to see you a couple times, of course. And we're just, for us, especially given all the uh, social and economic and financial pain around the country, I just feel very fortunate COVID has not impacted us to the degree it's impacted most Americans. So I'm really um, hopeful, as you are, that this might cause actually a reexamination of of all young families or families in just in general. And of course, anybody can change the world. So maybe through this experience, families will change or reimagine how they interact and how they structure their daily lives. I do remember you and Jesse were like a production line because you had to be get the kids out by eight in the morning, slam back uh, around five, five thirty, six o'clock at night. That's very typical structure for working families. So I love this time period for that. We are hearing from all young families. That benefit has been huge. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So you're a millennial and I'm a boomer and there are at least five generations alive today, although not in our family. We don't we don't have a lot of that, but I'm interested in your perspective. What makes you hopeful and what keeps you up at night? Um, so in general, I would say I'm a relatively optimistic person on the most part. So hopeful, I think in general, technology is helping our human race and our country. And so I'm hopeful that we have more opportunities to learn about others who are different than ourselves. I think that that's a good thing. I think it's important to understand the world as it actually is, not how we think it ought to be uh, or how just our little neighborhood is. That's one of the things we try and keep center as we think about how to raise our boys is we want them to be good citizens of the world, good citizens of their state, of their city, of their neighborhood. And I think this was a term used by one of your other podcasters, citizens of the house or of the home. Uh, I found that really interesting when I heard that term. I hadn't heard it before that. And so to do that, it involves being informed. And so I think that in general today we find ourselves, and I've said this for a while, you know, we have these cell phones in our pockets, a lot of us, that have more computing power than I think anyone could have imagined 20 years ago. Uh, That phone has access to the sum of human knowledge on the internet. And to ignore it or not seek it out I think would be incredibly neglectful and very sad that you have all this information, whether it's current or historical, that you have access to. And I just think that that's a really important thing. And I think it will lead to a lot of interesting things, especially for the generations who grew up with this as normal. We were talking the other day, my five-year-old and I, and he asked me what YouTube was like when I was a kid. And I laughed. I laughed and said, YouTube started in 2005, buddy. YouTube came about when I was graduating from college. And so, and YouTube is the the way I heard YouTube described once is, it's funny because I've used it this way a bunch. It's the father that no one had because it can show you how to do anything. And it's not, I don't mean that in any sexist way or anything like that. And it's not a knock against uh, my own dad, but you can go on YouTube and you can say, how do I change an air filter in a Nissan Titan? And boom, you have a video showing you how to do it step by step. And I think that that's just really powerful. Where I would have had to pay someone to do that previously, the information is out there for those who seek it. And I think that's interesting. And there's a flip side to that. And I could go any number of ways with this question, but I'll stick to the access to information. I think the thing that keeps me up at night is that the flip side of that is you can insulate yourself and be in a bubble. And I think that's in general what's happening today. And I'm not going to espouse any one thing is right, but people on anywhere on the political spectrum can surround themselves with only information that reinforces their views. So while the information's out there to be had, it's incredibly easy and it makes most people feel good to reinforce their own worldview. And so it's easy to insulate yourself from any dissenting opinions and you can rile yourself up with the news that you surround yourself with. And I think that that keeps me up at night because then we have 
alternate realities that people live in. And I'm not speaking alternate from mine, but, or, or, you know, alternate from what I think is right, but literally we experience different news about the same events, or we experience different, what we know is facts. And that's a problem when you have to have some level of society and community, which whether we like it or not, we all live in a society and we all live in a community. Parts of that community and society don't work unless we talk to each other. And if we're having problems talking to each other because we have different views on what is real, then that's a problem. And we're seeing that happen nationally, I think. So in general, I think it's a really interesting time to be alive. We live in a time of relative peace and of relative abundance and wealth. And there are the five generations alive and the older generations have seen a very different world than the younger generations. And, and by my example earlier, uh, my kids are seeing a very different world than I've seen because of the pace of technology. So thank you. I, and it's funny, I use YouTube the same way to learn about so many things that otherwise I would have no understanding of how to do. But I think that perspective is really important. And if we have you back on another podcast, we'll talk about your foray into politics, however brief that was when you were a younger man. But today, I just have a couple more things I want to um, ask you about. Your relative youth at 37, and this one, this question is going to sound self-serving, and it may be, but it's also, you know, a money question. And we think this because we don't talk about money in our society in a meaningful way that is helpful to people. Why is it critical for a millennial or any young adult? Because there are people in their 20s now today that also pursue this who wish to have the freedom to live well and be wealthy on their own terms, maybe differently than other generations. Why is it important for them to work with a professional to get that done? Sure. And I think I've fallen prey to this as well. So as a young man, and I lived through the technology boom that I just referenced, right? The social media booms started, uh, you know, the, the web boom in 2000 and the dot-com bubble, and then this rise of social media and all these other technologies. And so it's become really easy to look at the news and say, all I need is a smart idea and I can become wealthy. When the fact is, and I've learned this from you and, and Jesse, you know, most people become wealthy over time. It's not the jackpot win of either career or lottery, of course not lottery, I would never suggest that, but certainly it's not the jackpot win of, I'm gonna move to California and start a technology company and become a billionaire. One, there's some success bias there, right? You only see the people who succeed in the news, you never see the thousands of people who tried and failed. And, you know, acting, the acting industry is a good example of this. For every actor, there's what, like 20 people working in a restaurant waiting for their big break, which isn't, I'm not down on those people, but it's important to learn how wealth is truly built, I think. And I've experienced this in my career as well. It's, it's easy to look at a really successful real estate developer and, and say, all I need to do is go to the bank and get $100 million and I'm going to be, I'll have a $500 million real estate empire. I'm going to be rich. And that's just not how it works. It's built up over time. It's built up through smart decisions. And I think a financial advisor certainly helps with that. Your company has certainly helped me get myself to a place of much better personal finance. And I think it's really important. And the other thing I'll say, and I know I need to shorten up this answer here, but the other thing I'll say is uh, as folks move through their lives and build up income and assets and everything, it's so easy to live in the moment and not think about the future. Of course, I'll be healthy. Of course, I'll work forever. And that's as I get even just a little older to the end of my 30s, I'm thinking that, man, I really don't want to work for another 30 years. <laughs> and I love my job and I have a great job. It's just there's other things I want to do and being financially independent, solvent and good is, is the way to get there. So I appreciate you focusing on the one foot in front of a, the other, because as we all know, saving is not sexy, but it does uh, win the day. So thanks for that um, perspective. The last thing I want to talk about, and you know that this is also the name of our podcast, but we do believe that by sharing our stories and uh, learning from each other, we get to know each other. And we bridge that distance that you've talked about today. What story can you share with those folks listening about how you, Sean, know that this uh, life is not a dress rehearsal. Yes, yeah, so it's funny you name your podcast this. I tell this story a lot. I'm sure Jesse will back me up on this if you ask her. I'm not sure if she's shared with you that I share this story a lot, but I've shared it a lot for years, decades. And I'm sure you made this comment in passing to me one day, but you told me once when I was much younger in high school that you're turning 18, the world is going to start keeping score, there are no more do-overs. Yes, you can recover from stuff, 
but people are keeping score. And that people are keeping score thing in my mind has stayed with me. And again, I'm sure you made it offhanded, uh, you know, as a parent, I've certainly made offhanded comments that my kids have come back to me with. And I don't remember even now at five and three, but that really stuck with me. And my life experience bears that out. While you can recover from bad mistakes, it's time lost. They're not making any more time in real estate. We say they're not making any more land, but they're certainly not making any more time as well. It's one of those finite things in this world. And what you do matters. What you say matters. And there are real consequences for not treating your day-to-day life as serious and meaningful. And trust me, I'm the first one to take a day off and enjoy a day of leisure. But, uh, you know, that's done purposefully. And it's to your point, it's not a dress rehearsal. Each day I do that, it's a day I don't spend building other things, whether it be life, wealth, memories, et cetera. And so it's really important to treat each day as real. There is no second version of the day. There is, there is no movie magic that lets you redo anything. And again, uh, you know, I can't stress this enough. One of the things that's been reinforced through my career and one of the things I attribute to my success at an early age to become an executive in my 30s of something, you know, I didn't start but was hired into is treating my words and actions as incredibly important and serious. And uh, again, what you matter, what you say and what you do matters. And it really isn't a dress rehearsal. People are keeping score and certainly the world is. And I think one of the most freeing things I've ever read was the universe really doesn't care about you. The earth will keep spinning. The sun will keep shining. No one person is integral to the human experience. And I think that that's an interesting idea and one that bears out the fact that this is not a dress rehearsal. Thank you, Sean, for your time and your insights and your wisdom. We wish you continued health, happiness, and success. If you would like to learn more about Sean and the William & Mary Real Estate Foundation, reach out to him at www.wm.edu slash offices, wmref slash index.php. And that website is also on our podcast site. Thanks, Sean. Love you. Thank you. Love you. This podcast and any related material is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or other professional advice. For professional advice in any realm, contact the appropriate professional. We assume no representation or warranty, express or implied, for accuracy or completeness of content. We assume no responsibility for information contained in the podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Links to external websites are provided solely for your convenience. We accept no responsibility for any linked sites or their contents. Use of this podcast and its content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.